welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 333 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, Downfall, and N1 Update. In their first fortnight on board the Salyut Space Station, the cosmonauts had performed a large amount of scientific work and accumulated results to be returned to Earth for analysis by specialists. As the mission drew to a conclusion, the crew was growing homesick. Day 16, Monday, June 21, 1971, from Pat Saif's notebook. The can openers are inadequate, often creating shards while opening the can. The seal of the rubbish bags is unsuitable, letting the stench out. It is essential to have a worksite for performing repairs, a workbench with instruments. The station lights are inadequate. The inscriptions on the push buttons for switching on the food heater and the vacuum cleaner are barely visible. It is too dark at the work sites, especially at number 3. Day 17, Tuesday, June 22nd, from Dabrowski's Notebook. All the time we are busy with work, changing the water tank, activating scientific apparatus and adjusting it, taking pictures, controlling the station systems, making the day's TV program, communicating, etc., Vadim relaxes by reading Pushkin or Lamontov. Viktor uses the photographic cameras. From the perspective of its construction technique, the station reminds me of home. Although it has four rooms, the descent and orbital modules of the ship, and the transfer and working apartments of the station, here everything is optimal for work and rest. We have the engineers, technicians, and workers to thank for this. However, people usually think of home as a place to relax after returning from work. Here, it is impossible. On the earth, a home is where you are surrounded by relatives and friends. Here, there are only the three of us. And it cannot match the air, the sea, the Russian fields, the snow, or the wind. Everything that our minds associate with home. Meanwhile, at Flight Control, the Landing Commission met and recommended to the State Commission that Soyuz 11 should return on June 30th, making the landing on the third orbit after undocking from the Salyut. The recovery zone had to be generally flat, unpopulated, and without major rivers, lakes, or forest. They selected an area of the steppe some 150 to 200 kilometers southwest of Karaganda in Kazakhstan. Day 18, Wednesday, June 23rd. With the end of the mission imminent, the aerospace medicine specialists were called upon to analyze the crew condition. They expressed their confidence that due to the exercise regime and the penguin suits, the Salyut crew would be in much better shape on their return than the Soyuz 9 cosmonauts. Although it was evident from an analysis of the medical data and discussions with the crew that they were tired, tense, and lacked concentration, the physicians attributed this to poor organization of the flight, an overly ambitious work program, and the unfamiliar daily rhythm of the operational schedule of the station, which was shorter 
than the 24-hour norm. The Air Force felt that the crew would be able to finish the flight as planned, but would have difficulty readapting to gravity. Cosmonaut trainer Kamanin believed that Volkov would have the greatest difficulty because he had exercised the least, was drinking insufficient water, had refused to eat meat, had often complained about problems with the physical training equipment, and had shown the greatest tendency to make mistakes. Reading from Volkov's diary for June 23rd. I didn't take my leisure time. Instead, I could not resist spending it photographing Earth. I began by recording the mountains of Europe covered with fantastic patterns of snow and the Persian Gulf. It was simply unbelievable work. How could I turn away and rest? Above all, there was minimal cloud cover. Day 19, Thursday, June 24th. Dabrowski and Patsayev successfully performed one of the most important tasks of the military program. This involved using the Sphinx apparatus to observe the night launch of two solid-propellant ballistic missiles, one from a silo at Baikonur and the second from a mobile launcher. The Soviets hoped that Salyuts may one day serve as an early warning system for ICBM launches against their country. On the evening of June 24th, Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev broke the space flight duration record set by the Soyuz 9 cosmonauts. The breaking of the endurance record marked a major milestone. Yelizhev and Gorbatko called from flight control to congratulate them. Then they passed on the advice that when they landed, they should remain in their couches and wait for the physicians. Day 20, Friday, June 25th. As the mission drew to an end, the cosmonauts became more tired and emotional. At the same time, the physicians recommended that they intensify their exercises to improve their ability to readapt to Earth's gravity. Later in the day, the cosmonauts made their penultimate Cosmovision telecast. Dabrowski told his viewers, We are wrapping up a mission that will last just over three weeks. We are packing equipment, documentation, and some of the scientific apparatus and placing it in the descent module for return to Earth. We will return with a great deal of interesting materials. The scientists, engineers, and technicians are eager for them. And, to be honest with you, we are impatient too, because we have grown a little bored. Cosmonaut trainer Kamanin noticed the crew looked tired and had a low attention span. Furthermore, he observed, they tended to provide evasive answers to questions about their health. At 10.30 p.m., the Salyut crew finished their 315th orbit and exceeded by 50 hours the previous endurance record. Day 21, Saturday, June 26th. After finishing the scientific program, the final days of the flight were devoted to intense physical training, medical examinations, and other preparations for returning to the Earth. In concert with controllers at Flight Control, they had already started to prepare the Salyut to resume operating in its unmanned mode. They were to check and switch off all equipment that would not be required. 
the quality of the supplies of water, food, and other consumables that would be needed for the next crew had to be checked. At the same time, they prepared the Soyuz, which had been powered down for more than three weeks. The scientific materials to be returned to Earth were stowed in the cramped descent module in such a way as not to alter its center of mass or overload it. The crew were permitted to bring back to Earth only items specified by special instructions. Bags of rubbish were loaded into the orbital module and would be discarded with the module during re-entry. Day 22, Sunday, June 27, 1971. On this day, the Soviet Union suffered a severe blow when the third launch of the N-1 lunar rocket from Baikonur failed. The launch began well, but soon after liftoff, due to unexpected eddies and counter-air currents at the base of the first stage, the N-1 experienced an uncontrolled roll beyond the capability of the control system to compensate. The computer sensed an abnormal situation and sent a shutdown command to the first stage. But, based on data from previous flights, the guidance program had been modified to prevent a shutdown from happening until 50 seconds into launch. Thus, at T plus 39 seconds, the inertial navigation system of the booster went into gimbal lock, and at T plus 48 seconds, the vehicle disintegrated from structural loads. The interstage truss between the second and third stages twisted apart, and the latter separated from the stack. Meanwhile, at T plus 50 seconds, the cutoff command of the first stage was unblocked, and the engines immediately shut down. The upper stages impacted seven kilometers from the launch complex. Despite the engine shutoff, the first and second stages still had enough momentum to travel for 15 kilometers from the launch complex before falling to Earth and blasting a 15-meter-deep crater in the steppe. This was a serious loss for OKB-1 Chief Designer Mission because it undermined his ambition to send cosmonauts to the moon in the near future. Thus, the Salyut program became the last hope for Soviet manned space program. The Soyuz 11 crew had proved that the Salyut design was capable of sustaining long-duration missions. In conjunction with the daily telecast that had enabled people all across the nation to participate in the excitement of living in a space station. The research they undertook demonstrated what flying in space was all about. The Soviet propaganda became, the Americans had landed on the moon. So what? Soviet cosmonauts were the masters of Earth orbit, which was where the true benefits would be gained. In the meantime, the Salyut crew devoted their 22nd day in space to the increased exercise regime and medical test. The physicians rescheduled the rest times the crew had so that the cosmonauts would be fresher for the landing. However, this meant that for the first time, all three men would sleep at the same time. Thus far, at least one man had been on duty at all times. Although the cosmonauts accepted this new schedule for the remainder of the mission, they did not like it 
as illustrated by a rather terse communication session with Flight Control. Dabrowski transmitted to Flight Control. I have a question about the sleep schedule. It says that Yantar 3 is to go to sleep at 1240, that Yantar 2 will be awakened at 1400, and that during this time Yantar 1 will rest. Zarya replied, Correct. We will realign you slowly. Do you understand? Dabrowski said, The logic of this alignment is understood. Can the station remain without anyone on duty? Zarya replied, It is the decision of the control group. Did you understand me correctly? Dabrowski replied, I understood. However, we are not happy with it. Zarya replied, Follow the program. It will be all right. The station is in good order. Do not complain. Just do it. The control group says the new plan is necessary. Dabrowski responded, Understood. Also on this day, the cosmonauts made their final Cosmovision telecast. By now, they were the best-known cosmonauts since Gagarin, Titov, Tereshkova, and Leonov. Day 23, the cosmonauts' penultimate day on Salyut 1 began on the morning of June 28th. At 12 noon, the station completed its 342nd orbit with the crew on board. The cosmonauts continued their preparations to return to Earth. Having realized that the cosmonauts were really tired and mistake-prone, flight control decided to work with them step-by-step in continuing the process of preparing the Salyut to operate in its automated mode during the period between the first and second crew. As a result of this close supervision, which was feasible only during the periods when the station was in communication with the ground, the effort took much longer than expected. However, they used the same procedure continuing the preparation with the Soyuz spacecraft as well. On the ground, the experts began arriving at flight control. The group was headed by General Karimov and included Boris Chertok, Boris Rauschenbach, Yuri Semyonov, and Viktor Bukovsky. Similar to the docking with the station performed three weeks earlier, many off-duty controllers again came into the control center. And of course, VIPs flew in simply to be there. Despite the recent launch failure of the N-1 rocket, Everyone at flight control was happy with the progress of the Soyuz 11 mission and was confident that the undocking would go well and that the brave crew would land safely. Of course, no one wanted to talk about the N-1 failure, in part because Chief Designer Mission was not in a good mood, but also because most of the people present were firmly of the opinion that the real future of the Soviet manned space program was operating orbital stations. Day 24, Tuesday, June 29th. The State Commission met and confirmed the landing parameters. General Nikolaev reported that everything on the station and the Soyuz was as it should be. Re-entry was to take place on the third orbit after undocking from the station. With the landing time for 2.18 a.m. on June 30th in northern Kazakhstan. After landing, the crew was ordered not to open the hatch. They were to wait for the recovery team, 
who were expected to arrive within 20 to 30 minutes in order to assist them out of the capsule. When the communication session started at 7.45 p.m., Dabrowski and Volkov reported that the mothballing of the Salyut was complete. All items that were to be returned to Earth had been stowed in the descent module, and the cosmonauts were wearing penguin suits and ready to depart as planned. However, Flight Director Yelizhev pointed out that telemetry indicated that Volkov had forgotten to switch on the Salyut's noxious gas filter. Volkov initially argued that flight control had actually recommended leaving this switch off. But when the log of the previous day's communication was reviewed, he accepted his error and returned to the station to activate the filter. Finally ready to exit, they closed the hatches. First the hatch between the working compartment and the transfer compartment. And then, after they passed through the tunnel into the Soyuz, the hatch with the passive docking unit. Next was the hatch in the orbital module with the active docking unit. First Volkov, then Patsayev, and finally Dabrowski passed into the descent module. A hermetic seal of the final 60-centimeter diameter hatch was of key importance because when the orbital module of the Soyuz was jettisoned during re-entry, this hatch would protect the men from the vacuum, extreme temperatures, and radiation of space. As the last man in, Dabrowski closed the hatch, which was on a single 127mm arm and was sealed by rotating a large grip. But the hatch open indicator on the display panel remained lit. Without a hermetic seal, the air would leak from the descent module when the orbital module was jettisoned. For the crew, who did not possess pressure suits, this would be fatal. Flight control heard Volkov's strained voice say, The hatch is not hermetically sealed. What can we do? What can we do? Yelizhev calmly advised, Don't be disturbed. Open the hatch and turn the grip fully to the left, then close the hatch again and turn the grip six and a half times to the right. He also directed that while the hatch was open, they should use a tissue to swipe the ring of the hatch to see whether something had become lodged inside and was preventing a hermetic seal. Volkov and Dabrowski carried out this operation but the indicator remained illuminated. They repeated the process several times, but to no effect. After assessing the situation, flight control told the cosmonauts to inspect the sensors which sent the open-closed signal to the display panel. Many years later, this is how Yelizhev recalled this dramatic moment. Quote, we asked the cosmonauts to verify the operation of the sensors that sent signals to the display panel. The sensors are in the form of buttons, just like a doorbell. As the hatch closes, it pushes the sensors and then produces signals. All the sensors were in working order. But the guys found that the hatch hardly touched one of the buttons with the result that it did not push down sufficiently to send the signal.
we asked them to verify this repeatedly, and this was confirmed. We requested that they verify visually whether the hatch closed tightly, and they reported that it did. Because the automation would not permit carrying out further operations unless it received the correct signal from the hatch, we decided to generate the signal artificially. We simply asked them to apply a strip of insulating tape to hold the button in the correct position and then to shut the hatch. They did so and visually confirmed that the hatch was correctly closed. End quote. Once Dabrowski had taped the problematic sensor, he closed the hatch and the hatch open indicator went out. Volkoff informed flight control. It turned off. The indicator turned off. Everything is in order. During the 20 minutes that it had taken to resolve the problem, the mood both on the spacecraft and in flight control had been tense. Next, to verify that the hatch was indeed sealed, the pressure in the orbital module was reduced to 160 millimeters of mercury and the descent module proved to be airtight. Soyuz 11 was finally ready to undock from the station. At 9.25 p.m., Patsayev transmitted, The hatch open indicator is off. Zarya replied, All clear. Go ahead and undock. Patsayev reported, The undock command was sent. Soon after, Volkov reported, Separation achieved. Separation achieved. I watched the undocking visually. The station moved left of us during a turn. Zarya responded, The landing will occur ten minutes before sunrise. After a normal separation had been achieved, there was sufficient propellant available for Dabrowski to maneuver a bit. He finally came to a halt about 35 meters from the station and then turned his spacecraft to enable Patsayev to take photographs of the Salyut through his porthole in order to document its condition. Day 25, Wednesday, June 30th. While the crew of Soyuz 11 remained in the vicinity of Salyut 1, they still had two full orbits to make the preparations for their descent to Earth. During this time, cosmonaut trainer Kamanin, whose call sign was number 16, made one of his rare transmissions to the cosmonauts. Kamanin transmitted, Yantar, I am number 16. How do you hear me? Dabrowski replied, Number 16, I hear you excellently. Kamanin responded, Here are the landing conditions. Above the territory of the USSR, it is slightly cloudy. In the landing area, it is clear with a visibility of 10 kilometers. The wind is 2 to 3 meters per second. The temperature is 16 degrees C. The pressure at ground level is 720 millimeters of mercury. During your descent, you are to constantly report by shortwave and VHF on all antennas, especially those under the hatch of the descent module and on the parachute. After landing, follow your instructions. Don't open the hatch. Don't make any rash movements. Await the medical team. 
I wish you a soft landing. See you soon on Earth. Dabrowski replied, Understood. The landing conditions are excellent. Here everything is in order. The crew is excellent. We thank you for your help and good wishes. And then, a little while later, Dabrowski transmitted, We are following the program. The Earth will appear shortly. I am starting orientation. To the side is the station. Splendid. It is a beauty. Now I am starting. Patsayev transmitted, I can see the horizon in the lower part of the porthole. Volkov chimed in, The re-entry indicator is blinking. The orientation and control system indicator is blinking. It is normal. Zarya responded, Yes, it is. Then Dabrowski made his final official transmission. Systems checked. Everything is normal. The horizon has already appeared. The station is above me. Zarya replied, Goodbye, Yantars, until the next communication session. As the crew of Soyuz 11 began the most dangerous part of their journey, the return to Earth, the Salyut station on which they had lived for so long receded to a tiny speck gleaming against the dark background of space. At 1.10 a.m. on June 30th, Dabrowski, assisted by Volkov, oriented Soyuz 11 to position its main engine facing the direction of the flight. From this point forward, the automated system could control the Soyuz all the way to the landing without any participation from the crew. This included the braking maneuver, reorienting the spacecraft for the separation of the orbital and service modules, performing the separation of the modules, controlling the path of the descent module through the atmosphere in order to aim for the target, managing the parachute deployment sequence, jettisoning the heat shield, firing the retro rockets, and jettisoning the parachute. And that is exactly what it did. Between 1.22 a.m. and 1.31 a.m., Soyuz 11 passed over South America and then set off across the Atlantic Ocean. The braking engine was fired automatically at 1.35 a.m. as planned. At that time, Soyuz 11 was over the Atlantic between the northeast coast of South America and the coast of Africa. The engine fired for the planned duration of 187 seconds and was automatically switched off after reducing the speed of the spacecraft by the requisite 120 meters per second. Flight Control impatiently waited for a report of the successful braking maneuver from the crew. Shatilov, the communicator, repeatedly called the Yantars, but there was no response. However, tracking and telemetry determined at 1.45 a.m., almost seven minutes after finishing the braking maneuver, Soyuz 11 crossed the coast of Portugal. Shortly thereafter, the automated system rotated the Soyuz through 90 degrees in order to position the orbital module on top and the service module facing down. At 1.47 a.m., while passing over France, 12 explosive charges jettisoned the orbital module and six more jettisoned the service module. 
Because the main radio transmission equipment was in the service module, this terminated all signals from the descent module except those from the VHF antenna incorporated into the descent module's hatch. Shortly thereafter, it came within range of the antennas at Yevbatoria. By now, if everything was going to plan, the controllers ought to have picked up the VHF transmissions from the crew. Although Kamanin had explicitly ordered Dabrowski to report during re-entry, there was no reply. From flight control, Shatilov made repeated calls to no effect. Just like everyone else in flight control, Flight Director Yelizhev was surprised. He was quoted as saying, quote, We had asked Dabrowski to make continuous reports as soon as the descent module entered our communication zone, but he was silent. It was strange that Volkov was silent too. He was usually very talkative, end quote. As time passed without news, the anxiety amongst the people in the main control room rapidly increased as they realized that something must have happened. Soyuz 11 now flew over Germany and Poland and on to Soviet territory. At 1.54 a.m., the Soviet tracking radars reported that they had detected it north of the Black Sea at an altitude of about 40 kilometers and 2,200 kilometers from the aim point. It was now sheathed by plasma and hence temporarily out of radio contact. But the radar detection was good news because it confirmed that the spacecraft was on its way home. The controllers in flight control assured one another that the silence from the crew must be the result of a radio system failure. The tracking radars reported the reducing range. Distance 1,800, now 1,000, now 500, now 100, now 50 kilometers from the planned landing site. The small drogue parachute deployed on time. Then, at 2.02 a.m., at the altitude of about 7 kilometers, the main chute deployed. During the 15 minutes or so of the descent on the main chute, the crew were supposed to have made radio contact with the recovery team via the VHF and shortwave antennas built into the shrouds of the parachute, but there was no word. Next, the heat shield was jettisoned, and at 2.05 a.m., with 13 minutes remaining, the recovery crews on the IL-14 aircraft and the MI-6 and MI-8 helicopters reported to flight control that they could see the module swinging on its red and white main parachute and that they had detected signals from it, although there was no word from the cosmonauts. The manager of the recovery team, General Kutatsin, who was in one of the helicopters, reported directly to flight control. The clarity of his radio link was excellent. According to Yelizhev, beaming smiles came to the faces of the controllers upon hearing that a transmission had been received from the antennas on the main chute. The first signals received from Soyuz 11 since it departed from the communication zone during preparations for the orientation maneuver above the Pacific Ocean. Yelizhev recalled this moment, quote, Finally, we had heard a report from the helicopter in the planned landing area that
that they could see the parachute. It was wonderful. Then the report from Kutasan. The Soyuz has landed. Our helicopters are landing nearby. Well, it seemed that all was good. Next, they would report the general state of the crew. And with that, we would finish our work. Only a few more minutes. End quote. But there was still no radio contact from the cosmonauts. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 333 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Soyuz 11, Downfall, and N1 Update. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode will be released in two weeks on March 12th. If you are new to the podcast, what we're trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times and now we have reached the year 1971. I try to cover the most significant missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all countries in the world. Now up to this point, That has been mainly the United States and the Soviet Union. But we have covered other countries as well. Something else to be aware of. If you are listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. I have the first 162 episodes available on the Archive podcast. It's hosted over at Podbean. To find it, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like a better copy of those archive episodes in their original released format, including all the afterthoughts, that is available on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, and you can download it there. Okay, moving on. have a big announcement. The main podcast feed is once again available on Spotify. Just search for Space Rocket History Podcast. The feed was temporarily off because of some problem with FeedBurner. So I just resubmitted it to Spotify using a different feed, and that seems to have fixed the problem. But what that means to you is if you are using Spotify, you just need to search the pod, search for the podcast again, Space Rocket History, and you should be able to subscribe that way. Hope that helps you out. I've also applied to get on the uh, Pandora and iHeartRadio, but they have not approved the podcast yet. have no idea why, but hopefully that will occur soon. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. I went on a little tangent and decided to go ahead and cover the third launch of the N1. 
which the Soyuz crew was supposed to observe from space until the launch was rescheduled. In case you're not aware, the N-1 was the Soviet's attempt at a moon rocket. It had four launches in total, and all of them ended in disaster. The N-1 program was a failure, as I have covered in four previous episodes. That would be episodes 174 through 176 and episode 199. Check those out if you're interested. I really didn't want to spend a lot of time on this third launch of the N-1 because I kind of felt like it was beating a dead horse. So forgive me for taking a little tangent. I thought I had to mention it since it was relevant to the change of emphasis of the Soviet manned exploration from the lunar program to the Salyut stations. And it was also very relevant to many of the people on the ground, especially Chief Designer Mission. I want to assure everyone, as of June 29, 1971, the Soviets were definitely planning on another crew for Salyut 1. And thus, the Soyuz 11 crew had to spend time preparing the station for the next crew, which included a thorough cleaning and inventory of the remaining food, as well as returning Salyut 1 to the automatic mode. I also want to emphasize how important and famous this crew of Soyuz 11, Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev had become to the Soviet people. The TV and other news coverage really put these men in the spotlight for the entire USSR. So it was very important and they were very famous. Now back to the mission. Why do you suppose nearing the end of the mission when flight control changed the cosmonaut's schedule so they would all be allowed to sleep at the same time for a couple hours. Why did the crew oppose it? I believe it was a safety concern about possibly having another fire and perhaps being asphyxiated while they slept. I know if I was there, that would be in the back of my mind because that first fire was really scary. Now, remember when they were leaving the station, preparing to undock, and the hatch on the Soyuz between the descent module and the orbital module would not give the signal that it was sealed. Keep in mind the other side of that hatch would be exposed to space when the orbital module was separated during re-entry. And the most important thing to remember is none of them were wearing pressure suits. There wasn't enough room in the descent module. So that hatch really had to seal correctly without leaks. Put yourself in their position. You're sitting there in the descent module without a pressure suit and the hatch won't seal. Now that will get your attention. The solution that they came up with was very dangerous in my opinion. Overriding a sensor. But To their credit, they did test the seal on the hatch, and the seal was good. Okay, this one ended in a bit of a cliffhanger. I think most of you know how it turns out. 
But check back next time, and I may have a few things you didn't know. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting it. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions. I would like to thank Marco M. from California, a long-time big supporter of the podcast. At, he is the first person to occupy the NASA level on the donors page. And he's earned an alien head emoji. And we want to thank Marco for his very, very generous donation to support the podcast. Thank you so much, Marco. Thanks for doing it on this special 333 episode. (laughs) Matt M. donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Lorne Hens from Texas donated at the Apollo level. Egbert W. from UK donated at the Gemini level. Robert K. donated at the Mercury level. Rich M. from Virginia donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien head emoji. Graham S. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Christian R. from California increased his pledge on Patreon to the newly added Voyager level. Thank you, Christian. Janet O. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level, and Robert K. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 245. That is back to where we started on January 1. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Now, what usually happens this time of month on Patreon when they attempt to bill credit cards again, someone's credit card usually has expired, and we lose some donors. Now, we usually get those donors back, so if you think your credit card is about to expire on Patreon, give that a quick check, please. Our total donors for the year have reached 298 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. We have a nice new prize to choose from. It's a holographic sticker. It's a futuristic, metallic-looking sticker of the Space Rocket History patch. I think it's a really nice addition. This episode's winning donor will get a choice of the Space Rocket History magnet or two coasters, or two regular stickers, or two static clings, or two of our new holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Fraser Watson. Fraser Watson, if you'll email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com to tell us your address and your SRH logo preference, we'll mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 298 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Salute the First Space Station by G. Ivanovich, Soviet Space Program website, Russia Space Web, Astronics website, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts website, and Wikipedia. 
And that is all we have for episode 333. I will try to have episode 334 posted by Thursday, March 12th. So long for now.